deck. I'll give you a cue here. MMM Agency 100 Studio Sessions. Lippy Taylor. Okay, we're rolling. Hi, this is Jack O'Brien, digital editor at MMM. I'm super excited for you to plug into this episode of A100 Studio Sessions, a new podcast series which gets members of the MMM Agency 100 list an opportunity to riff on what sets them apart. In this episode, we're focusing on Lippy Taylor, an earned first creative agency based out of New York. I'm joined today by Paul Dyer, CEO of Lippy Taylor, and Craig Elimelia, Chief Creative Chief Officer. Creative. Paul, Craig, thanks for joining us today. Morning. Thanks for having us. I mentioned in the jump that you're a earned first creative agency. I want to start the conversation there just with a basic understanding of what that means and how it kind of sets you apart from maybe some of the other agencies that are on our list. Sure. Um, I can take a stab at this to start, Craig, and then obviously jump in. And um, you know, what I, w- I would say is that earned first is both an ethos, a way of doing work, uh, and an idea of, of what that work should look like in execution. Uh, to start with the ethos, it basically says that Brands that historically were able to sort of muscle their way to the top by just spending more aren't able to do that anymore. So whether you were a pharmaceutical product that was able historically to just have a larger sales force, bigger rebates, bigger ad spend, um, you know, that that was really all it took to succeed historically. Uh, or if you were a consumer health product, just distribution, end caps, you know, again, bigger ad spend, uh, bigger celebrities, et cetera, you could essentially buy success. And that really doesn't work anymore. Um, And most of the brands that we're most excited about and that you see winning awards and all those kinds of things are doing it with with less resources. And they're doing it by outsmarting and working harder and doing what we call earning it, right? Earning that success. Um, and so to embrace that ethos is to say, essentially, well, what would you do if you didn't have any advertising spend at all? You know, who would you partner with? What would you do instead of what would you say to make sure somebody heard it seven times or whatever your magical number is? You know, what would you do to try and build this brand if you didn't have any ad spend? And usually when you start from that place, you land on much more creative ideas. And once you've done that thing, whatever that thing is, well, now you can go advertise about it because you probably do have some ad spend. Um, and that's what it means to be earned first. Yeah, I think from a creative standpoint, like Paul said, it really is a mindset. It's a mindset that sets you apart from, you know, just just the jump, the first idea, the first iteration of of kind of where you want to go with any sort of, you know, sort of any any sort of brand or, or campaign, I think you really start with how, how do we first sort of insert ourselves in culture? How do we connect with culture? How do we connect with people? How do we earn their respect? How do we earn their attention? Oftentimes when we say it, and of course we say it a lot because we, we believe in it and we evangelize it, people will say, oh, earned media. And no, it's not earned media, right? It really is this sort of earned first mindset sort of similar to like a growth mindset. It's like really thinking about how to initially sort of present your client with ideas that have the potency to really establish themselves in culture as something that people can align align their values to. 
um, something that people can connect to, not just, you know, not just winning customers by spending. It sounds like it's kind of a proactive approach and kind of, you know, taking the reins of, of what you as an agency do and empowering your clients that way. And I want to understand that dynamic of kind of taking the storytelling into more of a story making approach. I don't know, maybe Craig, if you want to start and then Paul, sure. if you want to jump in. Sure. Brand acts really are what people connect to. You know, I think we started seeing it with brands like um, REI when they told you to opt outside. You know, it, it really is about, again, I'm going to say it again, aligning your values with your customers and making sure that they feel like the brands that they're associating with are, you know, part of their narrative, part of their story, that they can see themselves living within sort of that narrative, right? So I think in a consumer-led world where consumers really are the ones that are driving engagement, they're the ones that are sort of dictating how they choose to interact with brands, I think brands now have to take that sort of um, story-making approach because, um, you know, it's stories that people connect to. It's stories that people can understand and it's stories that allow themselves to sort of see them, see where they fit within, within that brand narrative. So, you know, you can say all you want, <laughs> you know, and people, you know, there's just too much to listen to, you know, and I think people are really drawn to brands that are doing things and making things that, um, that they can touch and feel and really sort of um, associate themselves with. Yeah, I think that I mean, that really captures the essence of story making. It's not that we don't still appreciate the art of storytelling. It's certainly part of what we do. But uh, if you look at across the whole medical marketing landscape and uh, just run a Google search for, you know, quote unquote, real stories, it's it's everywhere. Every brand is telling real stories. And so people are just tuning them out. You know, it's it, this sort of arc, if you will, from starting with brand narratives and brands were, uh, you know, had to nail the message and, you know, et cetera, to telling the patient story or telling the doctor's story or telling the story through somebody else's eyes. And it's just, we've, we've, you know, overdone that, overplayed that hand so many times that you know, people just gloss over it now. So you have to do something worth talking about for people to pay attention to it. And that's the transition from storytelling to story making. And, um, I, I don't know, maybe a, to bring it to life, it might be better to even use an example. I mean, Craig, if you want to talk about um, the children's book, sure. that's probably a good example. Yeah. You know, so again, I think that um, when you're story making, it, it, it really has to be both relevant <laughs> and differentiated, right? Like it, it has to connect to people in, a, in, a, in an authentic way, but it has to say something different than everything else is saying. So we recently had a project where, um, Albareo is a um, client of ours that um, treats a rare disease, a rare liver disease for young children. And um, there was an opportunity there where they wanted to simply create some content or I think it was, honestly, I think it was like a PDF that would talk about the condition and what kids go through. So we saw that as an opportunity to actually create a children's book that would resonate with kids suffering from this disease and help them see them, help them, help them be seen, but also help them be able to tell other people about what they're experiencing and what they're going through. Now, I don't need to tell you publishing a book is no small feat, <laughs> especially in a regulated industry like a pharma industry. So um, we, we had this idea to use AI 
to um, not just help write the book, but illustrate the book, bring the book to life, and even think about what sort of data can we infuse into the AI to help inform the outcome of the book. And I think we all know we're kind of on this precipice of a new age and AI is sort of is, is the buzzword. Um, but we wanted to use it in a, in a really genuine way, in a really authentic way that helped the consumer, that helped the people that we were sort of, you know, creating it for. And um, in short time, we were, we published a beautiful, beautiful book. We were able to create a central character named Ali, uh, which is now a piece of IP for that client and write a story that was truly, you know, putting that human at the center of what it was all about and really thinking about, you know, handing the book to a kid, reading the book to a kid, presenting the book to a kid, how the kid might experience that book and how they might then share that with others. Um, you know, that's a big deal today. I think if you saw a headline on the news and it said, you know, Albareo, rare disease pharmaceutical company uses AI to create a children's book, this new character, this new... I, so we get all the clicks. You get all the clicks, but I think people are really interested in companies that are using culture and the pervasive sort of technology and, and, and resources that we have today, not in ways that extract value from consumers, but actually provide value, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where, you know, as a culture, we tend to be sort of wary of technology because it's all about like cookies and data extraction and whatnot. And here, you know, I think we're sort of turning the tables a little bit and, 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 you know, sort of giving our client, our brand an opportunity to, to story make, to story do and create something using something that people might view as scary, but in a way that, that helps humanity. Absolutely. I wanted to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit. Paul, you're obviously known for being a leader in the analytics space. You have a background with building the analytics capability at Real Chemistry. And Craig, obviously, you come from the creative technology side. Your title says as much. I'm really kind of curious how you two have been, managed to bring those things together. Because obviously, I think to you know the layman, they might think, oh, analytics, there's no creative side to it. And creative doesn't need analytics. But obviously, those two need to work in tandem if you're going to have an agency that's going to be able to excel on both fronts. Yeah, I mean... Certainly, this is something Craig and I talk about a lot, and I would say it is one of the advantages of being sort of that mid-size independent kind of agency because your, your, your team isn't pushed into opposite corners of the globe, right? We all uh, work together very closely on a daily basis. Um, from the analytics side, what I would say is every major agency, every major uh, research house, vendor, you know, et cetera, and, you know, in-house teams at clients have been investing significantly in their data science capabilities, their tech stacks, you know, et cetera. And I was on the front lines of that a decade ago, you know, when companies were, were pouring hundreds of millions into data lakes and, you know, those kinds of things. And what I came away from the experience with in sort of version one was that agencies like ours should not be um, investing money like that to build these, um, these massive big data systems, which is what every major agency has done. Hundreds of millions of dollars go into these systems um, that will very quickly be outdated and um, that can in no way service all of the very different use cases that are going to come up. So what you end up with instead is you've got 
agency teams across lots of different clients. You know, they go to their tech stack that they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on and they put in a couple queries and they get out, you know, like very, very generalized audience data and things like that. And it doesn't really help them come up with a creative idea. It just helps them say it was that there was data behind it. Um, what we focus on instead is creating data science capabilities instead of data science products or a data science system. And so what that means is uh, we've got probably 15 people who, you know, statisticians and, and computer scientists that they have a, a, a workbench of a lot of different approaches they can use to scrape data, model data, put together different data sets that wouldn't typically be put together. And they're adept at working with Craig's team and other teams within our agency to essentially form hypotheses. So instead of just saying like, well, what does the tool tell me about, you know, patients of disease X? We have to work together and form a hypothesis and then go and, and get data that maybe people haven't looked at in this way before because you almost never find an insight in a single data set. It's always when data sets disagree with one another that you find the insight. It's like, why is this one saying X and the other one saying Y? And that's where the insight lies. And the whole process, which is kind of like going back to the beginning of scientific inquiry, right, is forming a hypothesis, testing the hypothesis, getting data from different places. And so that's been our approach um, on the data science front is it's really been designed to empower Craig's team and creative and you know, other teams across the agency to, to answer totally you know, bespoke questions. And Craig, how has that empowerment worked on your side? What does the creative output look like? I mean, so for me, because I do have a technical background and because I do appreciate sort of the, to Paul's point, the tensions that arise in those data sets that do disagree with one another. I think from a creative standpoint, that's what you look for. You look for tension, right? You look for the opportunity to find sort of these opposing forces and then use that as, as kind of your insight and use that to sort of bust something open and... Mm -hmm. and make something out of it um you know i've always been very close and anyone who's worked with me knows like i've always been very close to data analytics and strategy and, and really using that as my creative fuel um you know so i think from a from a applied creativity standpoint to me that's kind of how i think about it you know it's consumers are data sales are data behaviors are data everything we everything we sort of service is or are in service of is data and in order to provide that service we sort of apply creativity to that data and i think when you look at any of the best work out there and you really kind of like sort of unpack it a little bit that it's all really well informed by data there's a data point there there's something there that was kind of unearthed that allowed that piece of work to truly stand out. Um, so for for me, at least, it, it's just a natural fit. There, there's no sort of friction there whatsoever. It really is um, one in the same. I, I don't see you know, data and analytics as something separate from creativity. I sort of see it as, as kind of the point of departure. And then from there is when we kind of, you know, take, take what what we can and, and turn it into something that people people love to engage with. Paul, I want to ask you a follow-up question just about where you see this kind of confluence of 
analytics, technology, and creative going in the future. Obviously, you, uh, Craig was referencing earlier the fact that AI is top of mind. I can't think of the last time that I've talked to an agency head where that didn't come up in some sort of aspect of conversation, either with using ChatGPT or trying to create, create their own generative AI model. But like, obviously, the future is out there. It seems kind of unknown, but I'm curious from your perspective where you kind of see the, the tea leaves going. Um, I mean, the way that I would read the tea leaves is AI is absolutely going to be baked into every aspect of the job moving forward. It's just going to be an accelerant, just like having, you know, um, your your software at your fingertips and your mobile device was a massive accelerant to us, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's going to make things, you know, faster, better, et cetera. I mean, Craig talked about the the book that it looks like Pixar designed that book. But it was a computer, you know, and it couldn't do it on its own. It it required creative inspiration, leadership, guidance, et cetera, to do that. Um, but I think you're going to see AI as a massive accelerant. And I think that you're going to see teams are going to have to come back into more of a SWAT-like structure, which is something that we've done in the last year is restructure our agency to be more around sort of SWAT teams uh, instead of having your your sort of you know, your silo of creative is over here and analytics is over there and media is in a different corner and et cetera, as we've, we've had to create SWAT teams around, whether it's therapeutic areas, whether it's um, clients, et cetera. And I think you're going to see that's going to have to happen more and more because as AI speeds things up, that's going to be everybody's expectation is, well, why can't you do this faster? And the only way to get it done faster is to have those people working together really closely instead of in a supply chain, you know, where they're sort of doing the research over here and then passing it on to somebody else to have the insight and passing it on to somebody else to have the idea, et cetera. Um, so, you know, what I, I would say, probably probably the best example, I was thinking as Craig was talking, I'm like, how do I, what's, what's an example of this that, that I would be proud of, you know, of work we've done? Because as any agency goes, you, you've got, you know, some of your work is is just mind-blowing and so inspirational and some of your work is just work <laughs> you know and <laughs> you, you do your best to make it all as as good as it can be but that's the honest truth and the the you know the the piece of work we've done that i'm probably most proud of i feel like does bring all these things together and it was it was done for aspirin and it won all kinds of awards although i think it got like second place to our other campaign in all the award shows <laughs> But I like this one. It's a good better. competition. To I ask. like this one better. So, so think about this from the start. Like aspirin comes to us, and they said, you know, we want people who've suffered a heart attack to take an aspirin a day. This is the brief. You know, it's supported by the the research, et cetera. And um, you know, we our our data team comes up with this brilliant insight, which is, did you know that after you've suffered a heart attack, the actual rhythm of your heartbeat changes? And that's a creative insight. That's a spark for an idea. That's not just, oh, here's a share of voice, you know, or, uh, you know, people 35 and over, you know, who their loved ones have had a heart attack. They, they you know, like read ESPN magazine or whatever. You know, it's, it's a spark that you can work with. And so then the creative team comes up and says, you know, instead of just having a television commercial about this, which is what the initial um, ad agency had suggested, what if we did something? What if we made a story? And so we said, well, why don't we actually record the new heartbeat of a heart attack survivor and then write an original song set to the beat of that heartbeat and then give it as a gift to his family? And so that was when data science comes back in and says, well, who would we do that with? 
right? And then that's the identification and the casting for Leslie Adam Jr., whose father-in-law was a heart attack survivor. And the whole thing became very iterative, you know, where everybody was, was part of the process together. And in very short order, they were able to you know, get in touch with Leslie's people, actually record his father-in-law's heartbeat, produce an original track that Leslie and his wife sang together, and then create a 360 program around that. It's like, now you've done something that when you hear that idea, you're like, that's an idea worth talking about. That's a new story. You've made a story that Aspirin owns. And now you can advertise as much as you want about the fact that you made that new story. So that's, that's to me, that's an example of how like everybody has to be sitting at the table together and you had to, you know, um, use the data and the creativity sort of in, uh, in conjunction there. It is really interesting to hear you detail that because I remember when that came out and it was such a, it was one of those things where it's like, duh, that's such an interesting idea, but it's like walking through the exact process of like, it starts here and then we have additions throughout the team on the way really kind of speaks to the kind of de-siloed nature. Every leader I talk to is like, if we break down silos, we can get to that. And it sounds like that's kind of similar on that front. I didn't want to bury the lead because Craig had brought it up earlier that writing a book is obviously a challenge, but Paul, you've written a book. That's true. Yes. And it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, Friction Fatigue. I'm curious what insights came from that experience. Obviously, if it's a lengthy process of writing a book, rewrites, revisions, all that sort of stuff, you know, one, how did it start? And two, what was the experience like? Um, it started during COVID and everybody else was making sourdough bread. And I just felt and like you weren't doing something do it. more productive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I mean, I've, I've been giving talks for years to, to clients and, you know, industry events and those kinds of things. And you can always tell when there's stories that land and that people, people lean in for those stories. And then there's stories that I thought were really interesting that nobody else cares about. <laughs> And so at some point I kind of had the, the realization that I should start to write these down. And I did, but then the real like moment of like, this is the moment where I think these should all be brought together and told as a cohesive narrative was actually Michael Bloomberg's total bust of a campaign for president. Mm -hmm. Because the main thesis of the book is that advertising is no longer the power it once was. That advertising is a depreciating asset that you have to spend more money to get the same impact year over year over year. And now it's those things are actually diverging, right? You got to spend more money and you're getting less impact year over year over year as people are just tuning it out, you know, and moving into an era where they actually get angry about advertising, which is a whole new, you know, um, period. And Bloomberg was the inspiration because he spent $600 million in the course of a couple of months and got nothing for it. He got 12 delegates. He did. He did. 12 delegates. He spent more than than both sides spent on the entire previous campaign, right, in six months and got nothing for it, which just, it was like, this advertising is not working like it used to. And so that was the moment that was like, this is why it's time to, to put the book out now. The process was relatively painless, believe it or not. And I think it's just because if I tried to do it again, I'm out of good stories. So it would be really painful to do it now. But I had 10 years of stories that I could that I could put into the book. And I've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, so for those who you know, don't know, the book is called Friction Fatigue. It's about how, uh, as I've said, you know, people are essentially fatigued with advertising causing friction in their lives. And you've got that is in direct opposition to how Google, Amazon, Apple, etc., have been maniacal about eliminating friction from our lives. And then you have advertising that pops up and is designed exclusively to quote unquote disrupt you when you don't want to be disrupted. 
So to your point, yeah, it landed. It was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Uh, And now it's really become the backbone of a lot of the offering of what we do for our clients is we'll start with what we call friction mapping. Um, It's a process. It's part of a a broader suite of offerings called CX2, which relates to customer experience and customer expectations and says that essentially everybody's thinking about customer experience today. How do we improve the customer experience, whether that customer's doctors or patients or whoever? How do we improve the customer experience? But the customer experience doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Everybody has an expectation before that experience. So if you're going into a doctor's office, you have an expectation of how long you're going to wait. You have an expectation of how much time you'll have with the doctor and of how much, you know, what questions you want to ask and how the doctor's going to engage with you. And you have all these expectations. And then the experience is going to be shaped by those. But nobody maps the expectations. And so that's something that we we put a lot of thought and effort into is developing CX2 is how do we map the expectations people have at every stage of the journey and then identify the places where there's friction. Because if the expectations and the experience aren't aligned, that's a friction point. And everybody naturally thinks of that through the, through the lens of, are you meeting their expectations or not? And if you can exceed their expectations, well, that's great. But we actually think that's bad also. Expectations and experience should be exactly the same. Because if you're beating their expectations, it means that their expectations are too low. So demand is depressed. So I like to talk about this when you think about like pain, like an injection. You know, and so people are have an expectation of how painful an injection is going to be. And maybe you ask them and they say, I think it's going to be a six out of 10. And then they go and they actually experience the injection and it's a two out of 10. They go, that's great. But you know what? If all of the potential patients knew it was only a two out of 10, you'd have more patients coming in. All right. So that's the, the friction mapping part of what we do is sort of a jumping off point to everything. And that really was what came out of the book was we have to identify these these points of friction in the experience and then come up with things that we can do to essentially alleviate them. It's interesting you talk about kind of the experience thing and, and using the idea of a shot or something where it's like it shouldn't just be, oh, we, we just nailed it that time. It should be, you know, we're trying to change the the discourse, the whole dialogue around whatever that is. I'm curious if there's any sort of examples as it relates to Lippy Taylor clients where this friction mapping has worked out in some sort of way, or it's actually kind of redefined how you approach the issue? So I don't know that we could name any clients publicly. I would say there's there's one in particular where um, I think it has really completely changed their go-to-market strategy. And it's um, something that's you know at the heart of the Roe v. Wade discussion and all of these things that are very, very polarizing and very different regionally. And so what we've had to do is say, you know, the, the sort of typical patient journey just doesn't apply because having one patient journey in that kind of an environment is, is it's ludicrous. The experience for, um, you know, somebody in, let's call it rural Alabama versus the experience for somebody in San Francisco are wildly different, including their influences, including their expectations coming in and all of those kinds of things. And so we had to actually get really, really detailed and specific about all of the different friction maps and it's changed their entire go-to-market strategy. Um, but it's one of those things for because it's because it's been such a strategic initiative. I don't think we can um, name them, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. Craig, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation because you're going to be chairing the New York Advertising Festival's Future Now Executive Jury. Curious what you're going to be looking for, and maybe how future technologies are going to be incorporated into the show. Yeah, you know, I think for me, we are as a culture, we're so steeped 
in technology right now. I think we're sort of in this sort of kind of post-social, post-platform, post-tech world where, you know, you have you have a number of generations that don't know what it's like to be born without an iPhone or a, or a tablet or AI, right? Um, so for me, it really is about um, looking at the convergence of creativity and technology in in a way that feels really human, really natural. I think that up until now, we've seen a lot of examples of just kind of force fit, you know, things that are force fit. You know, uh, over the years, I've heard teams come to me with ideas like, uh, oh, Alexa. Okay, what what, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, what what I'm looking for is really the the sort of the the blending of technology and create and creativity and 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 when I say technology, I don't necessarily just mean, you know, whatever's popular right now. I think it really is the idea of creating the conditions under which the technology is completely invisible where you know you talk about frictionless there is no friction right you don't need a headset or a handset or anything to experience creative data or you know whatever the idea that we're looking at you know for me it's about how human does it feel which is actually kind of the opposite of what you might think the category is about, right? So we're actually looking for how frictionless, how seamless, how human people can sort of create, you know, ideas that are rooted in in tech. And it could be cloud, it could be AI, it could be whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. I really, I really want to see sort of the ingenuity of how it can be frictionlessly sort of inserted in people's lives in a way that, again, adds value, not extract. Because up until now, I think it really has been extraction. It's like, how much data can we get out of a person? For me, it's like, how do you get someone to willingly want to give you that data? How do you get someone to willingly want to participate in something? And it's not about trickery anymore you know I, I, you know as much as i've loved watching things like uh you know whopper detour and things that just kind of like play with people in ways that when you look back at it now it's sort of it's a little sadistic <laughs> you know it's kind of like you know we've sort of weaponized technology to try to get as much out of our audiences as, po- as possible i think now the script has been flipped and I do think that um, consumers are just so much more savvy, so much more aware. And I think they're looking for ways in which brands are genuinely applying technology to help add value, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's setting those expectations for what they're about to do or applying it to the things that they're doing and, 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 and really having a fun time and a human time and a cool time and all that good stuff. So that's, that's kind of where my, my eye is focused. It's funny, Craig, we didn't talk about this before, but you talk about the weaponization of some of these technologies and obviously like retargeting is something that comes to mind. And it's one of the things that I talked about in the book is sort of the militarization of marketing. You think about it, step back and you think about when we talk about, you know, we're going to acquire and target and retarget and like these are military terms. Mm -hmm. It's literally like we are going to war with the people that it's actually, hang on. We're not going to war with these people. These are our customers. These are people we're trying to help, you know? And and if you think about it through this new lens, Craig just put on it, of humanity, humanity is a word that's in common uh, refrain right now. It's the marketing landscape. So what does that really mean? Well, it is where the trends are moving 
both from a social platform standpoint and from an AI standpoint, is it's making the technology better for people, look, seem, sound more like people would, you know, themselves. But even if you look at where the social media platforms are going now, it feels a little bit like the pendulum has swung, it swung so hard towards social media and swinging back towards social networking, which for those of us that, you know, lived through this, you know, from the beginning, I mean, social networking was the beginning of this. This was where you would connect with people you knew in a deeper level through, you know, your internet accounts, whether that was, you know, the original MySpace or LinkedIn or whatever, it was, you were connecting with people you knew, people you had a real relationship with and deepening that relationship or getting back in touch. And then when Facebook IPO'd and, and bought Instagram in the course of a couple months, you had a hard switch into social media where the whole point became reaching people you'd never met before, right? And that social media era feels like it's really sort of at the, it's at its peak. And now we're coming back towards um, building more meaningful relationships with people in these tools. Um, it's, which I think is congruent with what's happening with AI right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly interesting to see how that all intersects, not only in society, but certainly pointedly uh, in the advertising space. So I appreciate you both going over that. And as I promised before we started the show, we do have a mystery question. Oh. I don't know which of you wants to answer the mystery question first. I'm happy to take a swing. Craig's going to take a swing first. Given that it is the studio session, the A100 studio session, and We've had references to tuning in, listening, all that sort of stuff. What was the last song you listened to? Mm. That's a great question. The last song I listened to is... Um, not, I, I'm not sure if this is the name, but it's um, Girls Are Players Too. Yes. Yeah. That song? <laughs> yes. I don't know who sings it. Plays exactly. Too. Yes. I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> I also have five daughters, but... Okay. but I love that song. Like, I just love the vibe of it. I think it's like just such a like badass, like really good. Um, so it's called Players. Players. Coilerae. Coilerae. Yeah. Right. Players. It's um, it's kind of like on every third <laughs> in my rotation right now. I, I I get streaky like that. Yeah. So for so for me, what I actually listen to most often right now is similar to where you were going with this is what's called Kids Bop. Mm. which is basically kids remaking modern pop songs. And uh, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, so that's in constant rotation. But this morning, it's actually relevant to this conversation. So this morning, I was listening to Liftoff by Labyrinth, which is a song that was originally written for a Cadillac commercial. Really? Cadillac launched Lyric, you know, which is an an electronic vehicle and um, an electric vehicle. And they, um, uh, you know, uh, worked with Labyrinth to write that song, and and it's in the um, in the commercial for it. He's uh, conducting an orchestra on this big red stage, and they're playing the song, and it's supposed to be a futuristic song and an electric orchestra. Um, and the reason I was listening to it and paying attention to it is because it was one of those examples where I looked at it and I was like, oh, they were so close. If you think about our example with Leslie Adam Jr., right? That's what they did. Right? It's great. They they same concept let's make an original song it's going to deliver the brand you know sort of essence through this song and then they've got this beautiful high energy electric orchestra like symphony playing you know with this big talent conducting them and they're just on a stage I'm like why didn't you do it why didn't you do it you were you had all the pieces just have the concert yeah 
You know, like just do it. And then you got something to talk about and, and fans will be talking about it. And like, but they didn't do it. They spent all the money and they just made a commercial. It's like, ah, just so anyways, uh, lift off was actually the last song I was listening to. But I'm glad that it, it leads to a deeper conversation there. And I can imagine sometimes there are moments where you're watching TV or consuming media and you're like, if they just do this, then then we have it. Yep. <laughs> you know, almost yep. every time. Seriously, <laughs> I, I, I can't not see any sort of brand activity today and think to myself like like almost there yeah you could have just done it a little bit differently and it would have just taken off you know and it yeah. just, it's the double-edged sword of the of the business that you work yeah, in yeah, so yeah well craig paul i really appreciate you being on the show sharing your insights on where the industry is going what's happening at your agency and obviously what you're listening to as well so uh certainly appreciate the conversation thanks for having us jack we really appreciate it absolutely thank you 